Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Healthcare data in the United States is divided into two worlds, clinical data and administrative data. The clinical data includes our personal health records and public health information. We've all been reading clinical data about COVID on the front pages of our newspapers every day for the past year. The administrative data is about how American bills and pays for their health care. And there's not one of us that hasn't received a health care bill of some sort. Both of these data worlds are highly regulated. The meaningful use and interoperability rules on the clinical side and the HIPAA transaction rules on the administrative side. But the two worlds are very separate. They speak two different languages. There's different codes and formats. The data is sent through different systems and streets. And on both the payer and the provider side, they are run by separate departments and, and different companies. In our virtual studio today is Lorraine Du, Senior Policy Advisor at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for over two decades. And if there is one person who is absolutely fluent in both the clinical and administrative sides of healthcare data, it is Lorraine Du. Lorraine has lived in both worlds, working as a liaison between industry, healthcare providers and plans, and government. And she will be our tour guide today, an ambassador who can tell us the strengths, weaknesses, and futures of both the clinical and administrative data worlds. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. WEDI, that's W-E-D-I, is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. Again, our guest today is Lorraine Du. Senior Policy Advisor at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Lorraine has played an instrumental role in many of the regulatory healthcare data initiatives we have seen over the past two decades. HIPAA administrative transactions, the move to ICD-10 and 5010, the Blue Button, Button Initiative out of CMS, and most recently, the interoperability rules. She serves as staff on the National Committee for Vital Health Statistics, which is the public advisory committee to the Secretary of HHS, and for many, many years has been on the Weedy board, where she has helped in Weedy's role as advisor to the Secretary. While at Weedy, Lorraine has won numerous awards, the Chair Award, the Weedy Distinguished Services Award, and many others. So welcome, Lorraine, and happy, happy to have you on our show today. Thank you for being a good friend to Weedy. Thank you, it's a pleasure. It's great to see you uh, both. <laughs> very good. And to speak to you. Uh, very good. It's a, it's great to, to have you on the show. Um, so uh, what I'd like to do is uh, start with the question we always ask is, um, where where have you come from? What was your personal journey that has brought you to the, the midst of healthcare data? And if I'm not mistaken, this starts with a, a cadaver. So I think that's a great place to start. <laughs> it does indeed. You know, we all have to get our start somewhere. And uh, even though I do have degrees in, you know, caring for people carefully, that does start sometimes with the with the end in mind. And uh, for me, that started with buying cadavers for the medical students at the University of Tennessee. Someone has to do it. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it, it was interesting, including having to go to the police station to claim the bodies and determine if they were good enough for the students. So, oh my goodness. Uh, it was a it was a great journey, 
But then I decided that I did want to work with the living. Uh, and uh, so I decided that I would do finish my social work degree and work with seniors who were in the community and very much alive. Um, and that was incredibly rewarding. Um, and it also meant that I really wanted to help um, change the nursing home industry. That was also a challenge. And I realized I was not going to single-handedly change the nursing home industry either. Um, but it did not change my um, passion for working with people or working with communities. Um, and after that stint, I, I finished my degree. It was in social work and gerontology, but still had this passion for working with communities. And as I uh, continued to work in that, I also realized that public health was very important. And then my next real sort of opportunity came working with a Medicaid managed care plan, doing um, community outreach because the best way to, to get people to come into for care was to go where they were and not to expect that they would come in for care. So working with a Medicaid managed care plan in particular was really going out and getting them to come um, help them understand what the center could do for them. Uh, so it was um, going out doing community programming, doing Black History Month activities, Martin Luther King programs for the kids, doing community fairs, uh, in the, again, in the community, and, and building on those programs and doing a lot of um, coordination with the um, with the public health organizations, again, all in, all in the name of um, how you get people to understand what the services are that are available for them and not having expectations. And then building on that ultimately ended up running a Medicaid managed care program for Blue Cross and becoming one of the largest Medicaid managed care programs uh, in the state and really loving what we could do for a population. As, and as I think I was mentioning earlier, really understanding you know, as we were talking about equity and social determinants of health and how important people are seeing that now, we've understood that to be an issue for decades, that homelessness, uh, food insecurity, transportation, um, that those, those issues have been well known and it's really great that people are paying attention to that now. Anyway, so I did that uh, for many, many years up until 2001 uh, when I got the um, well, when our actually when our organization decided that it was going to go public, mm. and we did not continue the Medicaid managed care program, much to my uh, disappointment because I was very very passionate about about it and it was very successful. Um, but uh, my brother said that I could do something on a national level, and that's when we uh, found out that there was this opportunity to do HIPAA at CMS which is when I went, took the, took the opportunity to go to CMS and do HIPAA there. And so I've been there since 2001. So let's start there, uh, Lorraine. And um, when you talk about HIPAA, uh, so many people think about HIPAA as, um, as privacy and security. But actually, the original HIPAA had much more to do with uh, electronic data. And, and maybe just take us through. I mean, I think you're a great uh, kind of ambassador for this or historian for this because you've been in the middle of both the clinical and the, the administrative data initiatives uh, since 2000. And it all kind of started with HIPAA. Um, maybe walk us through because I think so many of our, our listeners and so many of our, our, our uh, people, guests that we have on here, they're either one side or the other but I think you're bringing a kind of special perspective because you've seen um, both balls in the air, if you will. So let's start with HIPAA. Tell us a little bit about HIPAA, what, what the original intent was there and 
whether we got as far as we needed to with HIPAA? Well, those are, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Probably a PhD um, thesis too, right? So. <laughs> yes. So, you know, HIPAA, um, obviously it was from 1996. One of the things that always actually drives me a little batty about HIPAA is everyone says, oh yeah, I know about HIPAA. That's that privacy thing, right? It's like, no, HIPAA actually is quite a lot. There's a ton in there. It's, it's privacy and security and some other protections, but it also has what was, and when the time it was um, enacted in 1996, had this rather ground shaking opportunity to improve the way providers and payers exchange healthcare data. And in 1996, as I said a couple of years ago, when it turned 21, so it was eligible to drink. Um, so it, you know, it it had this great um, opportunity to really change the way we did things in exchanging information. But again, that was 21 years ago. So it it was successful in what it did in getting the healthcare community to exchange health information. But in 21 years, so much else happened not just in the privacy and security arena, but in the way we were able to exchange data and other laws were enacted, which also shifted what we were able to do and not just laws, but also technology. And what happened is the, the way that, that, that Health and Human Services wrote its regulations, the way that different policy arms kept up with each other, the way that different standards organizations kept up with each other were not on the same par. So mm -hmm. even though certain things were good about what HIPAA did, unquestionably, the cadence with which change was made for the benefit of industry and the way even industry changed wasn't at necessarily the right pace. So I think there were opportunities that that everyone didn't necessarily take advantage of. Um, that now there is an opportunity to take advantage of. Let's put it there. So I think it did what it was intended to do, but it but it may or may not be taking advantage of what it could be. And I think that opportunity is now. Okay. So why do you think it, that opportunity is now? What's what's happening now that, that makes it opportunity? Uh, because I think other and you know, maybe we'll talk about this later. I think there are other, one, I think there are a lot of innovators. I think now there, are, for example, there are uh, with the interoperability rules that have been published both by ON, the Office of the National Coordinator and by CMS. Um, many health plans are eager to exchange data in a more progressive way. Uh, there's a lot more collaboration happening. The standards are, are more nimble. Um, we and, and we, I think we have the right privacy and security protections that while we still may have some nervousness about data exchange and understandably so, so we, we might be more willing to exchange our financial data and say, well, we're pretty confident that that's safe, but we're not as confident about our healthcare being safe. We're getting more to that point, but the opportunity for providing better care when we can exchange it in a better way, it, we're so close to that point that we can't not take advantage of the opportunities of using different and better standards when they become available. 
and and we we really have to work together to make that happen to improve patient care at for every age and every level. Good. Good. So so, so, so um, you're saying it's an opportune uh, moment uh, right now, now. And, and because of because so much is so going on also on the clinical side, the the exchange of clinical information. And so uh, tell us walk us through the history of that. And um, you know maybe as far back as um, when we were when the government under CMS really and ONC was pushing for use of EHRs and your work with the blue button. Tell us a little bit more about how that kind of evolved over the years. Yeah, and and perhaps the blue button was one of the inspirations for that even before the 21st Century Cures Act. So, and the blue button is a little bit of a funny story, um, and I won't remember. I should remember everyone's names, but. Um, there, there was this concept that we sh- we really, just like we can get other data, we should be able to get our data basically with the push of a button. Like, why can't we get that? We can get other data. And it was actually a convening in New York City where a bunch of people were sitting around because Veterans Administration, Department of Defense, and CMS were talking about making data available. And the VA was pretty progressive about doing it. But at the time when someone says, oh, yeah, you should be able to get your data with the push of a button. And it was, oh, yeah, a blue button. And that's how it got its name. <laughs> it was literally, it. that's how, that's why it's called blue button. Um, but it was so it could have been any color at that point. <laughs> it could have been any color. But I said, yeah, a button, a blue button. That's great. Um but it was you could get you could push that button and get a PDF of your data. Hmm. And I remember being one of the first people to test it for my mother, and her blue button data was hmm. a thousand page PDF. Oh my goodness. That's what we could do at the time. Oh my goodness. Now, with the data that you can, you know, kind of structure and get because we have these standards is a lovely app, you know, that you can, as, as, they, as they've said, you can get it on your phone and look at it and it actually makes sense uh-huh. and you don't have to parse through it. And that's just like your banking information, you don't have to parse through it. You can see what your information is. Kind of like, you know, an Intuit app like Mint, you know, used to be able to analyze your financial data. That was sort of this concept of why can't we do that with our healthcare data the way we can with finance? And maybe it's not a thousand data elements, but it was that was the concept of why can't we do this with our medical information? And that's sort of how that began. And then when Congress passed the 21st Century Cures Act, in part because there was also this realization that providers and, and payers were saying, you know, no, because of privacy rules, I can't share your information with you. And there were, you know, all restrictions. So like in a, you'd go to a CVS and they'd say, you have to stand back there because of the HIPAA. It's like mm-hmm. Hip, HIPAA didn't <laughs> say that either. But there were these artificial barriers to people being able to get their own data, which was never the intent. So, I mean, the ONC, the I'm sorry, the 21st Century Cures Rules did many other things than that. And also with the... Um, the uh, meaningful use and promoting up interoperability of just how do we engage industry in sharing information, in understanding what the value of um, doing certain things to improve healthcare? How do we coalesce all of these opportunities to improve access, improve care, prevent barriers? mitigate mitigate problems <clears throat> and really leverage the opportunities of 
it's all about data standards and get the exchange, whether it's a clinical data standard or an administrative data standard, and not have these standards fighting. Why can't they operate in a, you know, in a um, collaborative environment? And that's really where um, both NCVHS and HITAC, which is the Office of the National Coordinators Advisory Group, we're talking about is there's no reason for these standards and these and this technology not to be able to work together. And so both what Congress, you know, uh, required of Health and Human Services and what the policies are doing is really to start that ball moving in that direction. Lorraine, uh, that you just ended on what I think would like to be the next area I'd like to explore is um, how, how what is government's role? In this, um, uh, you know, I think we've seen that the government sometimes puts out a carrot with meaningful use, and sometimes puts out a stick with some enforcement. But um, at, at, at what's the line? What, what responsibilities should fall on the industry? Should they be just uh, meeting those compliance dates, or um, should they be getting together and figuring out some of this stuff for themselves? How, and you've been 20 years in the government now. And where do you feel? And not to any particular rule in particular or law in particular, but right. In general, where, where's, what's government's role? Well, it's tough because government, you know, does require a lot of things without funding because it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have the funding and it does need to support innovation and collaboration. Um, but it is understandable that sometimes without a regulation, why would industry do something? It's it's very difficult and I totally get that. But I, I would love to see industry coalesce around a topic and come up with ideas for solutions and then work with government on those ideas to still move the ball forward. So rather than saying we can't do it because of these reasons is to say we can do it and here's how, and here's how we need your support. So I think there has to be a collaborative innovation that that to help move the ball forward because we we very much want to. Um, we will not. We will not probably have the funding to help do it, but we can do it. We can support in other ways. So I think there has to be sort of this innovative collaboration that works together. Very good. And, and can you think of a, an example where, uh, in one of your projects or in one of the regulations, where you saw that that worked very well, like one that might be a model for the future? Well, I do think, and I hope this is okay, is that with what the HL7 Da Vinci Initiative is doing um, for the HL7 uh, implementation guides, where it is a group of people coming together to work out you know, how those guides will be built and developed and then testing them, where there's a tremendous amount of um, industry volunteers coming to help do that work and test them and then tell where there are problems and where it may not be workable and then come back and say, here's what we, here's what we need. And granted there are, you know, Da Vinci is a public private sector initiative. But there's a lot of volunteers involved in that and a lot of communication. And I do think that is a successful model. Very good. I hope Very that's good. okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I think we've had a, a lot of people talk about the Da Vinci uh, project as a, as a successful uh, a kind of uh, collaborative effort uh, to get some answers and to figure out solutions to some of this. So that's terrific. So thank you. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Lorraine Dew, Senior Policy Advisor of the Department of Health and Human Services. And I'd like to check with Lorraine on where she sees us going in the future. 
but for now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. The preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration, Weedy has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Lorraine Tu, Senior Policy Advisor at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So, uh, Lorraine, um, uh, you know, it's funny, I just came off a meeting, uh, and uh, we were talking about this earlier, but I just came off a meeting with um, some some other healthcare uh, leadership uh, people, and we were talking about an upcoming rule. It doesn't have to do with interoperability rule, uh, but you, you, you got the sense in any room full of um, healthcare uh, industry that half the room sees this as a, um, a compliance question. Uh, which requirements do I have to make? When do those requirements have to be done? When can I check the box and, and escape from any enforcement that might come from the government? And the other half of the room sees it as uh, maybe an opportunity or a way to get even a, a market edge uh, if they actually take the requirement and go someplace. Um, what's your sense with the interoperability rules uh, that you're working on now? Um, do you see that kind of dichotomy in, in people's approach to that, industry's approach to that? And, and what, would, what, what comments would you have on that? Uh, well, we def definitely see people who are interested in checking the box and being compliant, and that's obviously to be um, acknowledged. Uh, <laughs> no, right? I mean, that compliance that's is a good thing. That's Absolutely. an important thing. But I think it's it's also very important to want to do the rule because it's the right thing to do for your organization, because it's the right thing to do for your patients and the beneficiaries and the enrollees, because this is the right way to move your organization forward. So it's not, sometimes when people ask, the first question is, uh, what's the compliance date and what's, is, there a, is there going to be a penalty? It's like the, the question on the exam, when you for the first day of class, like what's gonna be on it? That's not really the point. The point is really about moving your organization forward and doing having this great opportunity. And that's how that's how we see this, um, and it's part of the reason that Medicare fee for service program is also making an effort to implement these same policies, even though they may not be implicated in the rule. It's important for Medicare fee for service to do it as well because of the value it has for the beneficiaries. So I think while it's important to be compliant for compliance' sake and to potentially avoid if there is, you know, some you know, reporting that there might be, it's far more important to move this ball forward in terms of the opportunity that it presents. I mean, that's my perspective. No, excellent. So tell us a little bit about that. What is the opportunity here? And, and, and specifically maybe with the operating, uh, the interoperability rules that we're facing the next year or two, um, what is the opportunity? Where do you see this bringing us or what's the goal? Well, in particular, with, um, with the patient access API and, and individuals being able to get access to their own information. In this public health emergency that we've just come through, 
being able to have your own information, sharing it with other providers, sharing it with your family members and having immediate access is, I think, critical. Being able to share it with a public health agency or with a hospital, um, with hospitals having to share uh, admission, discharge and transfer notifications, having that information immediately available could have transformed much of what would have happened you know, if the, if those things had been in place, now they'll be in place next year, you know, the end. But but imagine if someone had been proactive, and had put those things in place because they realized how critically it could have changed communications between healthcare providers and healthcare organizations or payers, that there could have been some real differences in access to healthcare or in how patients could have been treated. It's that kind of thinking that I think was the opportunity. And granted, those things had to be implemented, but I, I think that's kind of the thinking that we're looking for as we go forward with other kinds of policies like that. Right. And I think uh, something you brought up uh, earlier, too, is this idea of access and equity in healthcare, access to healthcare. And, and you just mentioned it again there. How would these interoperability rules um, improve that situation of, of what we saw on the front page of the newspaper where there isn't equal access to healthcare in this country and it is inequitable. How, how do you see your rules as contributing to that? Well, I think there will have to be, there's no question we will have to do more education and more assurances that individuals who may have um, a disproportionate lack of access to technology, to tools, understand how to use it. And that may be part of what comes in the next set of rulemaking. Mm. So we think people have access to, let me take a drink, to a, a phone mm-hmm. to use that to communicate with their providers. Right. Very good. So I think that's what we can do in the next version. Very good. Okay. Excellent. So uh, now I'm, I'm going to pull back a little bit. And just as you as a, a healthcare leader, and somebody who's been on both sides, the private side and the public <clears throat> side, where do you see healthcare, or maybe what do you hope for healthcare to look like in five, 10 years? Where, where do you think we will be? Um, or where do you hope we will be in terms of data or anything you want to talk about? Uh, where we'll be in healthcare? Yes. Oh. Um, well, I hope we'd have more. Uh, oh, it's my cat. <laughs> um, I would hope that our public health, one, I hope that our public health system is finally more integrated into the rest of the healthcare system, that we sort of stop just talking about our public health system as this disparate system, like it's there and the rest of the healthcare systems here that is much more integrated. Um, And that because we now have telehealth is much more acceptable um, that we really take better, use better access to that um, and take more advantage of telehealth because I think that's kind of a, a, you know, a groundbreaking change in people's access, especially in rural areas. Um, and that we, we, we resolve the issues of privacy mm. and that we break down the barriers of people trying to control um, the barrier of people being able to share information that we that we protect data, but that we protect it in such a way that people are able to access it and share it 
with whom they want. So I think that's kind of how I visualize the future of healthcare because I think it'll improve access and care. Very good, very good. All right, so before we leave, are there any resources or uh, websites or anything that you think would be helpful for the listener and with what we talked about today or anything else that you're working on? Well, <clears throat> I do think that there are some good, uh, you know, again, I don't want to overly promote what is going on with HL7, but I do think if people are interested in interoperability, that is a good website. Um, naturally, we'd love people to look at our you know, the, C, the health, informa health Informatics and Interoperability website to check our rules. Um, and I do think that the Office of the National Coordinator has been putting out some really good information on their rules and on work that the health, um, their, their National Advisory uh, Council has been doing. And I do think it's worth it to follow along what they're doing because... Uh, some of the work that they're doing, both on health equity, on the U.S. Um, data uh, codes, is very helpful. And um, I think that there's going to be some very good work coming from there. So I would suggest that people follow that website as well. Good. Terrific. What, what was that website? The Office of the National Coordinator, okay. because there's a, no, there's a number of initiatives that will be coming out from some of the work that they're doing with other federal agencies that will soon be public. And I, I just would recommend that that be a, is a very good resource. Excellent. Very good. Well, uh, thank you. This has been a great discussion with Lorraine Dew. Lorraine, you've been a, a part of Weedy for a long time, spoken at many of our conferences, always been a good friend and source of information for Weedy and, and frankly, for the industry at large. So thank you very much for not only being a friend to Weedy, but for taking some time to uh, come visit us on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always fun to talk with you. <laughs> very good. All right. So this has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.